There's an idea that still gets around. Um, it's this idea that the Corinthians were a particularly evil or a particularly immoral group of people. Um, that the city itself was just a hotbed for sin and everything terrible in, in every vice of humanity. This was just normal sort of behavior in Corinth, in Corinth. And so what we see in the Corinthian church is just a reflection of how particularly evil these people were. It's, it's an old idea, and unfortunately, it's a very wrong idea. Um, it's just simply not the case. The Corinthians were people like everybody else in the ancient world. The sort of behaviors that we see in Corinth are standard behaviors really in any time in human history, as we're going to see, um, the sorts of things they're doing are still common practices today. They're still just pretty normal human behaviors that are true for every society. The Corinthians were no different in that way. And so really what is going on in Corinth is not an expression of a particular brand of immorality. It's just an expression of normal Greco-Roman and in, in a lot of cases, just normal human behavior. Um, is, there's really nothing unusual about it at all. And so the problem in Corinth, or at least with the Corinthian Christians, is not that they're, again, an immoral, particularly evil group of people. They're just normal Greco-Roman citizens, people of their time, people of their city, just acting like people of that time. Um, they were just acting more like Corinthians than they were Christians. Um, and the behavior that they're displaying, the Corinthian behavior they're displaying, is the sort of behavior that Paul would have engaged with everywhere he went. Um, the sort of sexual immorality that was going on was was just pretty normal for, for any other part of, of the world of that time. And so, we, first of all, we just need to dismiss that idea altogether. Um, and what I want to look at today is just who these Corinthians were, what was actually what, what, what was it to be a Corinthian and why did Paul um, write to them the way that he did? Now, clearly what is different when we read the letter to the first letter to the Corinthians is that he's dealing with issues that he doesn't seem to deal with in his other churches, behaviors that are um, well, very different to what we saw last week when he wrote to the Thessalonians as an example. Um, but again, it's not because the Corinthians were so so wicked in their in who they were, but rather they were just still acting like people of their society, people of that ancient world. So that's what we're going to get to um, just in terms of why Paul wrote the way that he did or, or um, what was going on. But what's the story behind that? And that's what I really want to focus the majority of our time on uh, the story leading up to this first letter. Where we left in our story last week, we, we were in Corinth, um, and so Paul was writing back and forth to the Thessalonians from the city of Corinth. So he'd eventually got down to there after he'd been driven out of the city of Thessalonica. Uh, he'd ended up in Berea, then down in Athens, and then he'd ended up in Corinth. So um, the majority of his time was actually spent in Corinth, so long enough actually to have a back and forth correspondence with the Thess Thessalonians. So that was actually happening in the midst of his time in Corinth. So there, there were some pretty stressful things happening in Corinth, as well as not just in um, related to the Corinthians, but also related to 
um, the church back in Thessalonica. And this sort of starts to give us an idea of as Paul's missionary work continues, the increasing stresses that he's facing, um, that he's not just dealing with the immediate problems in the city that he's in, but he's also dealing with the problems that he's left behind, um, the churches that he's planted. And with every new church he plants, he leaves behind um, the potential for ongoing problems. And that's exactly what we we sort of start to see as, as the time goes on. So he's in Corinth as he's writing Thessalonica, but there's also, um, this is where some certain things that are happening that will become sort of the lead up to, um, to the letter of Corinth itself. Now, Corinth is a particularly unique place. Paul spends about 18 months here and a lot happens in the time that he's there because it's, it's a very large and very important city. Now, what you notice about the way that Paul operates is that he goes to the major cities, right? He doesn't go to little villages, little country towns where there's maybe a couple of hundred people, maybe just a, literally just a few families. He goes to the big cities. He wants to go where the people are. Um, he's going to the places where there's new people coming all the time. So like any major city, people come into the cities for all any number of reasons. Now, um, in a modern world, you go into a capital city and then to do your job and then you go home at the end of the day. It's not quite the case in the ancient world. You, you, you work where you live. You literally work out of the house that you live in in most cases. But what you get in the major cities is a lot of people coming for trade, and so people coming in, in and out of the city for, for different trading opportunities. And Corinth especially is, is a place where you're going to find this because where most of these cities are, are port cities. They're built on harbours. And that's, again, for the reasons of convenience, that's where the trade and, uh, and travel is going to be coming from. So Corinth is especially prominent for this. If you look at Corinth on a map, it really sits centre in the ancient in in the Mediterranean, really halfway between Rome and Ephesus. So those are the, sort of the two main um, sort of points of of the Roman Empire. Certainly on the east, Corinth sits right in the middle of that. So it's a very prominent city, um, both geographically, but as we're going to see, very prominent in um, uh, sort of its commerce as well. So the city itself, what it also makes it important is that it's what we call a Roman colony. Now, what we saw last week was the Thessalonica was a city that was the capital of the region of Macedonia. Now, it was it was the original city. Um, it was the um, uh, the the ancient city of Thessalonica had continued on, and so it remained the capital of the region. Corinth was a different story. Corinth had actually been destroyed by the Romans. So during the same time that Thessalonica came under Roman rule, um, Corinth fought back, or at least it became the staging ground for a Greek resistance. Now, the Romans crushed that devastatingly. Um, so, they, you know, whatever fight was left in the Greeks was absolutely crushed by the Romans. And so the whole sort of Greek country, I guess the, the, the land of Greece that we know today, came under full Roman control. And just to prove their point, they didn't just defeat the Corinthian army or the, the, the army of the Achaeans that had fought against them. They destroyed the city of Corinth. They, they literally, they went to task with it and, and tore, tore the whole place down brick from brick. So basically they turned it into a ghost town, so much so that really just no one lived there anymore. It was always a thriving major city because of its location, but now it was just thoroughly destroyed there was there was just the only people that you would find in Corinth now are squatters um, there's just really no city left to speak of 
So as a result of that, Corinth really just laid bare for the next hundred years until Julius Caesar came along and realized that well, everyone had always known the um, political and the um, the economic benefits of having a city in Corinth. And if you can control Corinth, you can really control the trade into the eastern part of the empire. So there was always a, a prominent, there's always incredible value in having the city there. But for, of course, for that hundred year period, um, Rome had been dealing with its own civil wars. There was nobody that had really consolidated the empire enough to be able to sort of have the foresight to start to be more empire building um, until Julius Caesar comes along and he's he one of the last decisions that he makes in 44 BC was that he was going to one rebuild Carthage and then secondly rebuild Corinth both of which had been destroyed pretty much in the same year in fact by the Romans um, so this was sort of a, a, a new era that that Caesar was trying to establish he was going to really going to rebuild the Roman Empire um, so he, he makes the decision to do it, but then a couple of months later in March, he's, he's assassinated. So he actually doesn't get the opportunity to do that, but nevertheless, the decision was made. And so the city gets refounded as a Roman colony. Now, what that means is that well, a, a colony is a, a specific place that has been established by the Romans. Now, I think we've talked about this in different contexts, but when the Romans, create their empire when they come into a city like Athens for example or like Thessalonica they don't change anything these are long old established cities that you're not going to go in there and change the culture there and you don't want to you don't want to go in and build an empire built on changing um, everyone and changing their views and their gods and making them forcing them to be something that they're not you don't want to do that you want to leave things as much as possible you want to leave them exactly as they are if the people have been living one way for thousands of years, you don't want to change that. And so you go in there and you say, look, carry on as you are, worship the gods that you worship, just leave everything as it is. There's only two things we need from you. Keep the peace, pay the taxes. Those are the two rules of empire. You do those two things, just live out your lives just as you are. But there's also a secondary parallel strategy that the Romans employ, which is to build colonies. So this is where they'll go and they'll build a city that is built by them. Um, it's built on Roman design. It's, it's set up um, sort of in their political structure as a model along the same lines of the Roman Republic. Uh, everything about it, Roman architecture, um, Roman laws, Roman governance, everything is Roman. And so the idea of this is that these cities become a, a reflection of Roman culture and the, so that it's, it's a way of spreading Roman values. It's what we call Romanitis. So you're trying to make the empire more Roman, think more Roman and feel more Roman, not by forcing it on them, but by setting up cities that are the best cities, that are the newest and most, um, you know, they're, they're the most illustrious cities. And so you attract people to it. They, they know that if they want the best opportunities, they're going to come to these cities that have been built by the Romans because the Romans are going to place the most value and place the most um, time and care into these cities themselves. So Corinth is a perfect example of this, this, type, of, um, this type of Romanitis. Philipp Philippi is another example as well. But what it also means is that you can decide the sorts of citizens that you'll have in these cities. Um, you know, you rebuild a city is, is, is one thing, but to be a city, you need people. 
Uh, and so where are those people going to come from? Well, they're going to be people that you're going to establish there. So people that, um, you know, just are, are wealthy people that just can't find opportunities in the city of Rome itself because Rome's been built out. You know, all of the traditional families have got all of the opportunities already. So you're not going to get um, new opportunities in places like Rome. So you've got those people with money that want to invest and start to build businesses and these sorts of things. Corinth is the place that you want to go and do that because it's a brand new city that's looking for money and looking for investment. Uh, other types of people are going to be um, retired slaves, uh, sorry, sorry, retired soldiers. So you're going to get soldiers who've retired and as a part of their retirement package, they've been promised land. And so land is of a premium and places like Corinth have land that needs people to live on, to farm. So these people are going to be given these opportunities in a place like Corinth. And what that means is that the citizens, because they've been given the land by the Romans, then their loyalty is going to be to the Romans. So the original, not just the founders, but the investors in the city, the ones that are going to build the city and build it culturally, the ones who are going to become the politicians and the magistrates and these sorts of people, all of them are are literally Roman appointees. So all of the loyalty, all of the gods that this city is going to worship are all going to be Roman. And so it's a city that is devoutly loyal to Rome itself. So particularly when we get ideas later on, like the imperial cult, they all go, they're going to be fully embraced in a place like Philippi or Corinth, again, because it's a city that is already loyal to Rome. So what these become are a mini Rome. It's Rome away from Rome. You go to a place like Corinth and you get a feel for what it would be like in Rome itself, only newer, only a bit more organized in its, in its structure. So this is a big city. Now, on top of that, it's also a very famous trade city, as we said. So if you look at Corinth on a map, it actually falls right into a very important trade neck of, um, of, of the Mediterranean. And so trade would come through there quite. In fact, what would happen would be there's a little narrow neck called the Isthmus where boats would literally sail up to the one side of the isthmus, be picked up and carried to the other side. That was quicker and more convenient, or not quicker, but certainly more convenient than sailing all the way around the Peloponnese. So trade is central to, um, to Corinth as well. And what you, you take all of these factors together and what you end up with is a very... Um, is, is a very fast-growing city. Um, it's, it's a trade-driven city. It's a market-driven city. Um, it's also militarily strategic. It's really, it just ticks all the boxes for the ideal city for, for growth. And what we get by Paul's time is a city of maybe 100,000 people, which doesn't sound like a lot by today's standards when you think about cities today that have got, you know, tens and tens of millions of people. 100,000 people for those guys... Was, a, was an awful lot of people um, all sort of packed into this small city. Um, you know, the thing that we've got to keep in mind is that the whole Roman Empire is only about 50 million people. It's only a very, very, very small by modern standards. So 100,000 people all living in this city is, is quite an impressive group of people. So I say all that to say this is exactly why Paul came to Corinth in the first place. It's the ideal city to be doing, to be planting um, this Christian message because one, you've got people there, of course, 
but also you've got a city where people are coming in and out all of the time. Now, even just at a practical level, if you need to send correspondence, you don't have a postal system. You give the letter to somebody traveling to Ephesus, for example, and you pay them a couple of bucks and they take that letter with them. Um, so this is the common way to do um, a courier service. So you've got that coming. But more importantly, you've got pe people coming in all the time, people from all over the world that you can theoretically preach to, and then they're going to carry on that, that message to wherever they go. So it's easier to spread out of a place like Corinth, to send things out of a place like Corinth, and really just let the message spread much more quickly because the work is being done for you. Now, another thing that Corinth is famous for is that it, it is the host of the Isthmian Games. Now, we talked about the Isthmus just a moment ago, this very narrow neck of land that connects the larger area of the Peloponnese with um, the mainland of Greece. So right in this little neck is this place called Isthmia. Um, it's an it's a ancient city. You can still go and visit the archaeological site today. And they hosted one of the four Panhellenic games. So we've talked about the competitive nature of the ancient world before, and particularly in Greece. Um, this is an, what we call an agonistic society. The Greek word agony is the same as our English word agony, but what it means is struggle. It means competition. And this was what really characterizes ancient culture is this idea that everyone is in a continual competition for fame and for status and, and these sorts of things. So you're always in a competition and the way that you outwork that is in competitive sports. Um, sport is the, the, the sort of sports we, we're doing in these games is a reflection of the education that a young boy would go through, which is the perfection of the human. Uh, we've talked a bit about education before, but the idea that to make a proper, to make a fully formed human, it's not just about forming them intellectually. It's also about forming them physically as well. The, the human being, as far as the Greeks are concerned, is, is a mind. Um, it's a, it's a spirit, but it's also a body. So you form the mind through um, theoretical education. You form the spirit or the soul through um, through music and through dance and through um, through poetry and these sorts of things. It, it, it forms the soul. But then you also form the physical body as well. You want to perfect every part of your being. And so when you go to school, you're learning um, athletics, you're learning physical competition, things like throwing spears or you're learning to wrestle or to box or to run. In other words, the activities that are required to form a soldier, the, the sort of behaviors that or activities that you need when you are fighting in war are the sorts of things that you're learning at school because everyone's training ultimately to become a soldier. Everybody is going to serve in the army. So you're learning these skills as well. You're perfecting these skills. So then when you come to an athletic contest, that's really just a question of who the best person is at those particular things. Um, and so those same sports still, of course, we see today in many of the cases, we, our, our modern Olympics still uh, reflect those same activities that they'll train in, you know, two and a half, three thousand years ago. So 
in the Greek world, you've got the Panhellenic Games. Um, so there's four of these games, and these are the, so there's games. Every city has their own version of games, and there's you know every time when when major gods have been worshipped um, in any city, you're going to have some. You're going to have a context, you, uh, a, a contest, or you're going to have forms of entertainment as a celebration of that god. So all four of these games are firstly celebrations of the chief god of that particular um, activity. And what's happened with these four is that they've rose, risen to prominence as being the most, um, the, the, uh, the most famous of the many forms of games that occur in, in the ancient world or in ancient Greece. So the first one is the one we still know of today, which is the Olympics. So the Olympics are held in Olympia and they are um, – uh, they're they're in worship to Zeus, so the the chief god of the Roman of the Greek world is Zeus, and so the Olympics are a, a celebration of him. And the, the prize that you win in that games is an olive wreath, so literally a crown made out of an olive branch. Now you think, oh, well, that doesn't sound like much of a much of a prize, um, but the real prize is the glory. The real, the real prize is the honor of having been the winner of these games. So this is where we see Paul later on pick up this idea of, you know, don't compete for a crown that will perish, but compete for a crown that will last forever. It's a direct reference to these games that we're talking about here. So then you've also got uh, the Nemean Games. Now these games, um, the Olympic Games, are held every four years, um, whereas the, the Nemean Games uh, held in Nemea are held every two years. Um, and then so you've got the Nemean Games, you've got the Pythian Games, and then the fourth set of games. So the Pythian Games are to the um, held in um, Delphi. So if you remember our the the um, uh, Temple of Apollo in Delphi, so the worship of Apollo. So the Pythian games are held in honor of, of him. But then the fourth of these games are the Isthmian games. So these are held in Isthmia, but they're actually hosted by Corinth. So Corinth is the city that actually takes care of them. And these are hosted every two years. Now, the Isthmian games are a celebration of Poseidon because Corinth, um, Isthmia are port cities, and so their primary god is going to be Poseidon, uh, certainly in Isthmia, Poseidon's going to be their main god because he's a god of the sea, god of travel. Um, so this is the celebration of him. Now, the prize that you win at the Isthmian Games is a crown made of of pine leaves, of, of, of a pine branch. Again, basically something you can just rip off a tree and make in five minutes. But again, it's the honor, it's the, it's the glory that you're trying to win in these games. So the Isthmian Games are hosted every two years, which means that not only do you get the regular trade and travel people coming into Corinth from all over the world, every two years people do specifically come to Isthmia just to watch these games. So it's in the same way as people would go and see a soccer World Cup or they would go and see you know, the Olympics, it's going to be the same case in Isthmia. People are going to travel to see these games. So Corinth is going to be continually inundated with people coming for this exact activity. In fact, if we date the games to Paul's arrival, it's very likely that Paul came during the same time as the Isthmian games, which would be appropriate for a guy who makes tents for a living that he would come to a place that needs accommodation, um, that you're going to have people come in and they're not coming to stay in hotels. You don't have hotels in the ancient world. People are going to be bringing their own places to stay, which would be tents in this case. So it's an, it's an ideal time 
uh, for a guy like Paul to to arrive there. Now the the games themselves, the usual the the um, the the activities, the um, the the events are all pretty sort of standard events that we'd find: foot races, boxing, wrestling. You've got the Pancratian. Um, that's a little bit of a different game. So you've got boxing and you've got wrestling. The Pancratian is where you take all of that and you mix it together and you have this basically free-for-all brawl, um, kind of like MMA, uh, mixed martial arts. It's the same sort of sport where you take in all of the fighting methods and you, and you roll in them all into one. In fact, there's only two rules in the Pancratian. You can, you can do anything you want apart from eye gouge and bite. Um, those are the only two things that you can't do. Then you've got the pentathlon, so that takes all of those events and into sort of a big ten event thing, and then that's that's the sport there. Um, horse races, but then also other activities that you're learning through the course of your education. So again, this is a reflection of who the most educated, the most sophisticated people are. This isn't about brutality. This is about um, who has who's been the most educated. Who's, who's the most physically complete human being. And so you're also going to compete in music and especially oratory. So public speaking was an event. It was literally an Olympic sport, um, which is a reflection of a culture that places high value on oratory. Now we're going to talk in more depth about this in another episode, but what we need to recognize in this time is that oratory was uh, one of the ultimate expressions of your education. Oratory was a skill that everyone has to learn to enter into public life. And so this is what you're primarily learning in what we would call university of the ancient world. This is your higher education is where you're going to be learning oratory. Uh, And so it's a very famous activity. Orators were the celebrities more than uh, certainly more than actors who are always going to be slaves. Orators were the most elite, most educated, most sophisticated people of their time. So people turn out to see orators. These are really the celebrity circuit of, of the day. So oratory becomes a sport at the Isthmian Games, which is important to keep in mind later on in our story because what that means for the Corinthians is that every two years, the best orators from around the world come to their city. They host the best of the best. So they, they know what good oratory looks like because they get to host it every two years, which again becomes very important for our story later on when we look at Paul's preaching and the impact that actually had on the Corinthian church. Now, a point that I was making last week is that Paul was in Corinth in about 49 AD. So we can date his for a second missionary journey to around about that time. Now, the question is, how do we know the dates? Um, it's look, it's, there's always going to be questions and a bit of speculation about this, but Luke doesn't give us any dates for any of these events. He just talks about the story. He doesn't actually try to locate them and specifically, um, well, he doesn't certainly doesn't give us any sort of numerical dates, which they didn't have anyway. Um, but what he does do is that he draws, he, he points out certain events um, throughout the narrative in the year that such and such a thing happened. He does this a couple of times. And what that does is it gives us a, a, a reference point to be able to go back to and say, well, we know when that happened. So if, if that's the same time, then that's when this happened. Well, that can give us a couple of key dates that can, we can then use to work back and forwards from to get an idea of, of when these things were happening for Paul. So this is one of those rare times where he does this. And this, again, gives us a bit of a, a, a sort of a, 
a locating point for the time of Paul's arrival. So we pick up the story of Paul coming to Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. So it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. So Claudius ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Well, that was an event that we know happened in about 49 AD. He, he actually expelled all the Jews from Rome. Now, we read about this um, in an ancient historian by the name of Suetonius, and he talks about this these uproars that were happening in the Jewish community. So he says, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Now, Crestus, what is he talking about? Well, there's heaps of speculation about who this person was. Was it actually just a guy named Crestus or had he misunderstood the name Christ? Is he talking about arguments over Jesus Christ? Now, scholarship sort of goes one goes both ways on this. Um, but what is really the point? And if it was Christ, it is um, it would make sense because what it's suggesting is that Jesus, the preaching of Jesus Christ was causing such a disturbance in the Jewish community, uh, and we've already seen that happening in Paul's time, um, that he's just going, you know what, enough's enough, or everyone, all the, anyone Jewish, just go, right? It's, come, it's starting in the synagogue, so all of you guys can just, just get out of here. Um, so we'll actually pick up that story again when we look at Romans, because that becomes the basis of, on which some of the problems emerge um, that Paul addresses in the letter to the Romans. But in the, anyway, the point being that we can date that event to about 49, which if that's the case, then this Priscilla and Aquila, who we know were from Rome, and we meet them later on when Paul writes to the Romans, they've been expelled along with the rest of the Jews. Now, for the Jewish people, they'd say, hang on, we're Jews and those Christian Jewish Christians aren't really like us. Um, Claudius would go, I don't care about any of you guys. It's all You're all Jewish, just get out of here, right? Go, bugger off. We, we don't want anything to do with you guys anymore. Um, so that being the case, where they've ended up is down in Corinth. Um, so if that, if that event took place during the year of 49, Paul's arrival in Corinth would have been probably towards the end of the year, maybe at the, at the outset, at the outside, at maybe early 50. So this place is Paul's arrival in Corinth, maybe around about winter, so December through February, 49 or 50 AD. Um, Thereabouts there, there are the very least. We can't, of course, pinpoint a day in a month, but it's going to be somewhere around that time. So around about end of 49, sort of 50, we know that Paul had been doing some work in Thessalonica during that year. He'd also been in Philippi that year. All of that took time. Remember, travel's very slow, particularly as Paul's traveling on land, it's even slower again than traveling by sea. So he's going by foot. This is all taking time for him to do this. Um, so it's going to be the end of the year that he finds himself in Corinth. So we, if, we, if we say, let's say the very beginning of 50 AD is when Paul arrives in Corinth, and we know he's going to stay there for the next 18 months. So that's going to place Paul's departure around the middle of 51 so these are the sort of the dates that we'll be working with. Now, for this week and for next week, we're going to use a bit of dating to try to 
keep track of Paul's, Paul's travels around this time because he gets very busy over the next couple of years. A lot of stuff starts to happen here. So, um, so beginning of 50 to the middle of 51 is when we're going to be placing at least this first part of the story. So the story continues, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Now, we talked a bit about this in a previous episode when we are talking about the New Testament and money and should we pay pastors. I was actually looking at this story here of um, why Paul made tents or did leather working when he was in Corinth. And the reason was, was that the Corinthians had actually offered him support. We find this out later on, that the Corinthians had actually offered him support that he'd refused to take. And the reason he'd refused to take it was because it came with strings. They had said to Paul, we'll pay you, but effectively we will own you, which is a pretty standard thing. Um, If you're a traveling teacher in the ancient world, what you're hoping for is support. And what you really would ideally want is somebody to adopt you as a client. You become, you you end up on their payroll. Um, You become their own personal philosopher. So this is one way that you can make a steady income. So the Corinthians would have offered Paul something like this. You can be our personal pastor and um, basically we'll own you. And Paul says, well, I can't do that because I need to be free to preach to everybody. This is what he talks about in Corinthians 9. He says, if I'm, if I'm owned by you, then I can't be free to preach to everyone else in the city. I, I, it just doesn't work that way. So he refuses this support and instead decides to apply his trade, do the leather work in, in this case with Priscilla and Aquila. Now, that's going to cause problems later on. As we're going to see next week, that's going to cause some significant issues as this story unfolds um, in the offense that that would have caused. Because in a nutshell, what Paul's saying is, at least the way that they've understood it, is your money's not good enough. Um, I don't want your money. It's not good enough. I'd rather go and make tents or do leatherworking. Now, on top of that um, sort of slight against the Corinthians, the fact that he's gone and worked a trade. To work in a trade is a low status thing to do. If you're elite and you're wealthy, you don't work. That's a mark of pride. You you don't work because you've got slaves to do all that for you. So to actually have to work for a living is in and of itself of really base character. This is a person who is just not an educated person and so not a person that can be trusted, all of those things. It's just, um, it's all of the horrible stereotypes that we might apply um, to just sort of just a a low status type working class type person um, is is really exacerbated in the ancient world. So that, uh, that would have made the relationship or that would have made it even more difficult for Paul to, um, to really stand out amongst these elite people uh, in Corinth, the fact that he's working in a trade. But on the other hand, it gives him an opportunity to meet people all the time. He's out in the middle, he's out in the forum doing his work and he's meeting people from all over the city every day, new people all the time. And whilst he's working, you know, he can be chatting with people that he's doing repairs for, he can be talking to them about the gospel. It's a great opportunity to do the work of the ministry because, you know, you you literally, you've got a captive audience, captive audiences every day. It also provides a place where they would have had their initial meetings. Priscilla and Aquila are actually Christians already. um, And so that would have been the first house church. Um, The first church meeting would have occurred in their shop. Now, House churches are named because they the assumption is they always met in houses. And for the most part, they did. But that wasn't only in houses. They just met wherever there was a building, 
wherever they could get a roof over their heads. So in this case, it would have been in the shop. Now, the thing to bear in mind is that the house would have been attached to the shop as well. So you could, so they would have met in that building and there may have been maybe more space in the shop than there would have been in the house. But the point was, this is where the first group meeting would have been. Um, would have in this shop with Priscilla and Aquila. So that's where the church in Corinth really begins. So all of these benefits that it provides for you is is very helpful uh, for somebody like Paul who's trying to do um, try to get the gospel spread as quickly as possible. He's not just aiming for one particular group of people, the elites. He's aiming for everybody. And what better place to meet all of those than in a leatherworking shop? Hey, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you so much for listening. I hope you're finding this podcast helpful. If you're enjoying it, please consider leaving a five-star review. This is going to really help to spread it further. Uh, You might also enjoy the YouTube channel and all of the other social media attached to the New Testament story. You can find the link for these in the show notes. And you might also consider supporting the channel financially. Um, You can do that through that same link. But anyway, back to the show. So the story goes on verse three. It says, and because he was a, uh, as it, oh, sorry, uh, verse four, every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So we won't unpack this standard story. Paul goes into, a, into the city, goes into the synagogue every Sabbath, does his normal thing. Um, now, as we're going to see in a moment, he gets kicked out of there and uh, carries on his ministry elsewhere. But again, Paul preaches in the synagogue because he's a Pharisee. He's a Jew. He's got a captive audience there. This is the logical place for him to go. Um, but then he goes on in verse 5, and this is a really important point in the story, and this is why, if effectively why we have a second Corinthians is because of what happened here. Now, I'd said a moment ago that when Paul came to the city, he refused the support of the Corinthians. But something happens here which is quite significant. So verse 5 says, When, Tim- when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia... Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So Silas and Timothy, they if you remember them from our story last week, they were with Paul in Thessalonica and they'd been sort of doing the back and forward work of um, reporting on what's going on in uh, Thessalonians. So this is their arrival. They've arrived from Thessalonica. So Paul had been with them in Athens. They'd met, met him in Athens and he'd and told, and so he'd sent them back to Thessalonica to find out what's going on, to encourage the church. They've now returned to Paul and have given him that report here. So this is when Paul is writing First Thessalonians um, as a result of what they've brought back. But what they've also brought back is financial support. Now, we know this from later on. We know that the Philippians um, have been supporting Paul, have, just, have become financial partners with Paul in the ministry work. And we'll talk about that when we get to get to Philippians, but they've here they've actually brought what would have been the first installment of Paul's support, and we know this because Paul's it says Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching. Now, what changed? Well, he's no longer doing his leatherworking. He's no longer he's able to full time preach. Why can he full time preach? Well, because he doesn't have to make money anymore. He's making money to support himself as a leatherworker. Well, now that he's full-time preaching, he doesn't need to support himself. Why? Because the support has been brought from Macedonia. So Paul's got now enough to do the full-time preaching, which all sounds really great and wonderful, and it's it's all a good story. But the thing to remember is that Paul has just refused to take money from the Corinthians. 
So on the one hand, he's saying to the Corinthians, your money's not good enough for me. But on the other hand, he's saying to the Philippians, thank you very much. I will take that money. So this is just adding fuel to the fire of, all, of what is already some tension or some suspicion around the character of Paul. Now, all of this is going to come and blow up in his face uh, later on. But for the moment, this, this is kind of the, the, the seedbeds of, uh, of these problems here. So then, as is normal, um, problems begin to arise in Corinth coming out of the synagogue because of Paul's preaching there. And so we pick those up in verse 6. So it says, But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titus Justice, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. A couple of quick things to pull out of this story, because it's a very important turning point now for Paul. So Paul had been in the synagogue. He'd also been preaching in the in the workshop. So the first um, house church meeting, quote unquote, begins in in the workshop, but he's also doing the preaching in the synagogue. But this is a real turning point now in the story of the Corinthian church, because what Paul does now is that he goes exclusively to houses. And what we, what we find later on in the Corinthian church are just a whole series of house churches. Most of the problems that we find in Corinth are reflections of what you would expect when you've got a larger church broken up into smaller groups. So he Leaves the, he leaves the synagogue and he um, goes literally next door. Um, now, in, in my particular denomination, there are sort of uh, ethical code of conduct around ministry. And the main one is that one of the main ones is that if you leave your church, if you're if you're pastor in a church and you leave, or you go and plant another church, um, you're a leader in the church and you go and plant a church, you don't do it in the same city. You go a long way away because what it is likely to do is cause church splits because people are going to come over to your church rather than stay in their existing church. So that's number one. Um, Paul's like, no, blow that. (laughs) I don't care about any of those rules. He literally goes to the house next door, right? He goes right over, he walks out of the synagogue, looks around, he goes, there's a house and goes on in and starts a church in there um, with this guy by the name of Titus Justice. But also we find that he go, he takes with him Crispus, this synagogue leader. So he, he literally takes the pastor of the church, the head of the synagogue, he takes with him to establish this church. So you've got this new house group meeting that has begun. Now, another little interesting point is that it says Crispus, so this head of the synagogue and his entire household believed in the Lord. Really important to note is that when Paul um, establishes his churches, he almost in, in most cases, he does it with the head of the house because the head of the house determines the gods of the family. The head of the house is the one who he, we talked before about him being the CEO of the company. He's the boss, he's the manager, and so he's the one who determines what's going to be worshipped in that particular household. So if you get him saved, very likely you get the whole household saved because they will follow suit to whatever the boss is doing. And so this becomes Paul's strategy. Get the head saved and everybody else will follow along with that. Now, it also 
indicates to us that some of the some of the the people in Paul's churches were people of significant means. You know, the majority of people, let alone Christians in the ancient world, are very poor people. People living at subsistence level poverty. But this guy Crispus, he's the head of the synagogue. That's a wealthy guy. Because to be the head of the synagogue, you are elected to that position for 12 months and part of your role is to actually fund the community, actually fund the entire, uh, the entire thing for, for that whole year. So this is a guy of significant means and probably significant uh, influence because he's the head of the synagogue. He's really the head of the Jewish community for that period of time as well. So this, this, again, this is a really influential guy. Now, we actually find in Paul's Corinthian church a number of people of similar means. Um, we meet a, a woman by the name of Chloe who had sent people to Ephesus to, we read about her in 1 Corinthians 11, who'd actually sent messengers to Ephesus to give a report to Paul as to what was going on in the church. Now, one, she's got enough servants to spare. We're talking about slaves here, enough slaves to spare that she doesn't need them at home, but she's paid for them to go to Ephesus. That means paying for their travel, pay for their food, pay for their accommodation in Ephesus. And this is for a couple of months. This isn't a quick thing, right? It's not an overnight flight. This is a, um, a slow process that she would have had to pay for the whole way. So that's a woman of some, some pretty significant means. Stephanus as well. We read about Stephanus who has a whole household um, who are part of this church as well. He too, and he also sent messengers to Paul, he too would have had some significant means to, to have all of that. So you've got some people in Corinth that the people that own these houses in some cases seem to be people of some sort of significant means. We're not talking about maybe uber rich people, but um, certainly wealthier than your typical impoverished people, like the sort of people that we met last week in Thessalonica. So these are all grounds for some problems that are going to occur later on. You've got a church that's growing in smaller groups that are, and and when you save the head of a household, you save the rest of the family, so the wife and the children, but also the slaves and anybody attached to the family. This could be quite a significant group of people who all fall in line now with this Christian message. Now, that's great, but it also means that their loyalty is to the head of the house, right? So that their loyalty is to this person. And if this person um, has a particular view about Paul, for example, then everybody's going to fall in line with with that particular view. So these are all some, some of the grounds on which that we're going to have uh, some troubles later on. So we really have just one, made, one more major issue that occurs um, during Paul's time there, and this is uh, a confrontation that he has with the governor of, uh, of the region. So Corinth is the capital, the Roman capital of the region of, Gal of, of Achaia, and the governor of this uh, region at this stage is a guy by the name of Gallio. Um, now, Gallio is the brother of Seneca. So we've met, I think we've met Seneca before. Seneca is the very famous philosopher, the contemporary of Paul. Um, so Gallio is the proconsul. Now, um, we'll just, we'll pick up the story. It's in verse 12. So while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. Uh, this man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Uh, and so we've we sort of saw this already in Thessalonica. 
um, what they're charging, what, what they're trying to charge Paul with is that he's preaching Jesus Christ. Um, the preaching ways contrary to Roman law, which is the, the law that states you can only worship, um, uh, you, you need to worship Caesar as God. And so what they're charging him with is that same, uh, with that same treason. Now, Gallio knows what's going on here. He knows that they're just trying to, um, that they don't like Paul. He's, you know, he's, he's smart enough to know what's going on in his own city. So he knows that they just don't like Paul, that they're jealous, that they're trying to get him, um, just to try to get him driven out. But he also knows that that's going to cause trouble for him as well. So he doesn't see Paul as a big enough threat here to, um, to have him executed, certainly, but not even a big enough threat to do anything about it really at all. He just wants to, um, he, he just doesn't want to have to deal with the potential fallout from dealing with this. And so as the story goes on, just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about a mis some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names in your own law, settle the matter yourself. It will not, I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So in a sense, they were right in trying to bring Paul, you know, they, they could have really drummed up the charge of Paul being um, uh, preaching um, this sort of treasonous message. Um, but Gallio, again, he just knows that this is just not something that is of, it would be worse for him to deal with this than it would be for him just to pass it over and just, okay, you know what, just, just let's just let this thing slide. So that's exactly what we find that's, that's happened here. Um, and so the Jews really just don't get what they want. What they want is for Gallio to do the work of ideally having Paul executed at the very least, having him driven out of the city. Um, but they don't get either of those results. In fact, what they get instead is that <clears throat> their new synagogue leader, the guy that replaced Crispus, um, he gets beaten up <laughs> by a mob. And, um, well, that's not the outcome they, they were seeking after. But Paul realizes at this point that, you know what, it's, it's time to go. Um, it's the, they've attacked me once they're going to do it again. And so there's really, there's no, there's not much, there's not much point sticking around. It's, it's time to get going. So verse 18, um, says Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, and this is where everything started to fall apart. And so Paul um, departs now with Priscilla and Aquila and goes over into Ephesus. Now, this relationship between these three becomes quite a close relationship. They, they really partner with Paul now for, um, for the remainder of his time in, in ministry. Now, so they go, they go to Ephesus, and as we find out from the story, Paul only spends a very short time there. He begins a new missionary work. If you remember, he actually wanted to go, to go down to Asia, go down to Ephesus in the first place, but he got called over to Macedonia by this Macedonian man, whoever that guy was. He gets called over there, um, but now he, he's done Greece. He's gone through the region of Greece, and so all of that has been covered. And so now he wants to go back to Asia, which is where he was originally going to work in the first place. So now he's, he's back over there. But before he begins his work, he goes back to Jerusalem um, 
for, for whatever reason, probably to report on what's just happened, to check in. Um, and then he, he's going to arrive back in Ephesus where he's, he's going to begin that work officially. Now, we'll pick up a bit of that story next week. We're going to run out of time today. But we get the story here where during that time, while Paul was away from Ephesus, this young guy by the name of Apollos turns up. So it says in Acts 18.24, he was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and talked about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, they went, um, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted the Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So we said a moment ago that uh, Corinth was well known or Corinth was a city that attracted the best orators uh, through the Isthmian Games, but also just being a big city, uh, a place where there's lots of people means there's lots of money and lots of opportunities to perform. And these orators were performers. They were the celebrities of their time. And so they would travel around to give uh, demonstrations of their oratory and people would pay lots of money to these people to see this. So this was a place that was going to attract the best of the best. So the Corinthians are used to good orators. Now, it seems that when Paul was there, he wasn't very good. Now, as we find out later on, it wasn't that Paul's a bad preacher. He seems to be a very good preacher. But when he came to Corinth, he dumbed it down a lot because he didn't want the Corinthians to think that the power of his message was because he was so articulate. He wanted them to know that the power of his message was in the, in the God of whom he preached. So Paul intentionally dumbed it down for a group of people that were expecting the best, that Paul just didn't want them to misconceive um, the, the power with what is just him being articulate. On top of that, if we remember, Paul had refused their support. Now, this would have been problematic for some of them, but there seems to have been enough rapport for Paul to still be able to continue on his ministry work. So what they got when they got Paul was a guy who wasn't a great preacher and also somebody who had really offended them by not taking their support in the first place. Now when Apollos turns up, however, he's everything that Paul never was. Paul, sorry, Apollos has been, is from Alexandria. Now Alexandria is one of the three educational capitals of the world. So we've got uh, Athens, Tarsus, and Alexandria. And what Alexandria is famous for is for its training in oratory. Uh, they're, they're very well known specifically for this. So for a young guy to have been trained there, and he's obviously a man of means to be able to travel to Ephesus and seem, seemingly travel around the world, he's obviously a guy of some sort of significant means, which would suggest that he's got that education. Um, and so he's got all of these great abilities. When he goes to Corinth, he's, he's a very powerful speaker. He's able to hold his own with these elite Jewish um, uh, teachers, well, that says a lot about the quality of this guy's oratory. This guy was educated, he's very smart, and he's very good in public speaking. So he's everything that the Corinthians wanted. And as we, we find out later on from the letters, that it seems that he did take their support. He did receive their, um, their, their the offer, offer of support because he needed it. Paul didn't need to take it from them. 
he would have been, you know, it was nice that it would have been nice to have taken the money. Um, it would have meant that he wouldn't have had to do his leather working, but the fact that he could do the leather working meant that he didn't have to take it. And so he, he refused their support and, and worked instead. Apollos is a young guy who's probably just fresh out of university who doesn't have any other trade apart from oratory. That's, that's what he's got. And in any normal circumstance, that's how he would make his money. Well, for Apollos, he needs to take their support. He's got no other, um, he's got no other means of survival. So he does take their support. It's not that he's a bad person. He just takes it out of necessity. So number one, all of those people who have offered money to Paul and been refused are now able to support um, Apollos. Well, automatically that is going to bring some loyalty to him over Paul. Whatever feelings they had towards Paul are now sort of coming over to Apollos. They're, he's now becoming their guy, literally in that they're supporting him. But on top of that, what you're going to have is that Apollos is going to continue the work. Paul started house churches, and so Apollos would have been doing the same thing. Well, there would be people coming to Apollos' ministry that have never heard of Paul. Or if they have heard of Paul, they've never sat under his ministry. And so there's new churches, new house meetings that are emerging now that would be loyal to Apollos, that they would only know him and his ministry. He would be their pastor, for want of a better term. So already then, we've got the seedbeds of divisions that we're going to see later on. We've got the beginnings now of factions that are forming. It, it, add on top of this the fact that they're meeting in houses and the remember the head of the house, um, the people in the house are loyal to the head of the house. So whoever he worships or whatever he believes is what everybody's going to fall in line with. So if the head of this house is loyal to Apollos, then the whole household is going to be. So we've we've got the sort of the locations for these different groups that are going to form later on. All of the pieces are in place. Everything is falling into place now for exactly the sort of divisions that we're going to see later on when we come to the letter. So one of the primary problems that we deal with in 1 Corinthians is the uh, are these divisions that are happening? Um, and we see in the story leading up to the writing of 1 Corinthians exactly um, all, all the parts that come into play uh, for, this to, for this eventuality to occur. Okay, so as you can tell, there's, this is a big story. There's a lot going on in Corinthians. And take, uh, add on top of that, the fact that I've, I've just spent a lot of time over the last 10 or 15 years studying these letters. So I'm trying to hold back everything that I, that I want to say about it. Um, but what we'll do next week is we'll pick up the rest of this story. So again, we've got the beginnings of the divisions happening here. Um, and so what we're going to see next week is how this whole thing really blows up, how we go from some divisions, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, to outright we hate Paul and we never want to see him again. Um, how does all of that happen? Well, again, we'll pick up that next week. But otherwise, have a great week and I'll see you next week. Mm -hmm.